My name is James. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to lead us in our study of God's Word this morning. So if you have a Bible or you want to grab the one from the seat back in front of you, we're going to be looking at John chapter 18. So you can begin making your way there. And as you do that, let me just pray for us this morning. Father, we thank you that we can worship you in freedom. Father, we thank you that no matter what we're going through, no matter what situations we're facing, we know that you're a good God and that you love us and you sent your son to die for us. And so, Father, as we look to your word now, I pray that you'd open our eyes and our ears. And Father, would you give us hearts willing to obey everything that you teach us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was October 15, 2017. I woke up before my alarm clock went off and I was trying to get back to sleep. And so I kind of readjusted my pillow and I turned my head a different direction on my pillow and something happened that had never happened to me before. The only way I can describe it is it felt like my body barrel rolled out of bed and I opened my eyes and I was exactly where I was before. I hadn't moved, except now the room was spinning around me. I had something called vertigo. And the month after that was not fun at all. I found out that there's two basic theories as to what causes vertigo in, in people, this dizzy spinning sensation. The first theory it was the one that the people at the walk-in clinic and my family doctor said, and, and the, it's the leading theory in the medical community, and it's that vertigo is caused by the inner ear. So it sounds a little bit strange, but apparently there's these tiny little crystals in the inner ear beyond where the Q-tip can reach. And these, these little crystals, apparently they can, they can get loose and they can kind of bounce around in there and they cause this really dizzy spinning sensation. And that's one of the leading theories as to what causes vertigo. So I went to my family physician and told him all my symptoms. And he says, I'm 99% sure that vertigo, the vertigo you have is caused by your inner ear. And so, you know, that's great. He said, I said, what's the, you know, what can I do about this? He says, just wait six to eight weeks and you should be feeling better. <laughs> and so I sought a second opinion and, and I was, you know, talking to people and people would offer advice or, you know, try this, do this. One person said, you should go to a chiropractor because chiropractors can be good for vertigo. So at this point, I'm saying, I'll try anything. So I went to a chiropractor. I told the chiropractor all my symptoms, and he said, I'm 99% sure that your vertigo is because of your neck and nothing to do with your inner ear. <laughs> so on the one hand, I have someone 99% sure it's my ear, another person 99% sure it's my neck, and I'm just 99% confused and just wanting this to be over with. And the reason I bring this up, believe it or not, this sermon isn't about vertigo and its causes or anything like that, but I bring it up because it's amazing how often two people can look at the exact same thing and come away with completely different conclusions. You know, maybe you've went to a movie before and you walk out of the movie and you turn to the person you came with and you say, wasn't that awesome? And they say, that was the worst movie I've ever seen. And you're just, right, the same movie and just completely different conclusions. We see this all the time. And one of the places we see this most uh, pronounced is in the court of law, in the courtroom. Because in a courtroom, it's, if you've ever thought about this, both sides of the, of the court use the same evidence. The prosecution doesn't have their own kind of separate evidence. That, you know, the prosecution and the defense, they both use the same evidence. And the prosecution, they look at the evidence and they arrive at the conclusion that someone's guilty the defense looks at that same evidence and they arrive at the conclusion that someone's innocent. Uh, same evidence, but different conclusions. 
And I bring this up because I think the same is true for Jesus. All throughout human history, as as soon as Jesus came on that Christmas day, people have been making decisions about who Jesus is. Some people look at Jesus and they say, uh, he's my Lord and he's my Savior, and they embrace all of who he is. But you have people on the other side who look at Jesus, they read the Gospels and they reject Jesus and say, "I I don't want anything to do with him. And then there's those in the middle who say, well, I'm not going to say he's my Lord and Savior. I'm not going to reject him, but I'll say he was a good teacher. I'll say he was, you know, he's a great spiritual leader. And they'll kind of try to get the middle ground. But everyone's looking at the same evidence, but arriving at completely different conclusions. And so what I want to do today with us is we have this text in John chapter 18. I want to read this text and kind of consider this as evidence of Jesus' life. And the question we want to ask is, what does this text or what does this evidence, what conclusions does it lead us to have? What what should we believe based on the evidence that we're looking at? And we're going to look at this in kind of two different perspectives we could take looking at the same thing. And so if John was uh, on the witness stand, the, the man who wrote this gospel, we can say, John, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And he'd say, absolutely. So let's read beginning in chapter uh, chapter 18, verse 1, going all the way to verse 27. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temples where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. 
But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sends him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked him, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. We'll stop reading here. There's a lot of text that we just read and a lot of evidence. And the question that I said we'd ask is, what does the evidence lead us to believe? And the answer is, it actually depends on the perspective that you come to the evidence with. It depends on the perspective that you have. And so what we're going to do to start is we're going to look at what I'll call the majority perspective. And we'll call it the majority perspective because I believe that most people who are involved in this story would have had the perspective we're about to talk about. I think this is what the disciples would have saw. This is what the religious leaders would have saw. This is what the soldiers would have saw. And your outline says this, when Jesus was arrested and put on trial, most people would have seen, first of all, the plan and power of Rome and the religious leaders. We'll start by talking about the plan. And the first thing we have to realize is that this isn't just a bunch of soldiers randomly wandering through the countryside at night. This is a group of soldiers there for a particular purpose, a particular reason, in a particular place. Uh, this is a plan that's been going on for quite some time. Back in John chapter 11, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it really increases his profile among the people. In other words, this is something that Jesus has done that people just can't ignore anymore. You know, you can't ignore it when someone raises someone from the dead. And so everyone's trying to decide what they're going to do about Jesus. Of course, some people embrace Jesus and they believe in who he is. But for the religious leaders, they have a different idea about what to do with Jesus. We read these words in, in John 11, verse 47 and following. It says this. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish." And a little bit later, we read that from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. If you read the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we'll see more details of the planning that was made. And so what we see when we get to chapter 18 of John's Gospel is the plan in action. And they've gone to every length to make sure that this plan goes exactly how they want it to. And so they get Judas on their side. They get someone as close to Jesus as possible. One of the 12 disciples, one who has walked with Jesus for all this time. And Judas agrees to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. They get the Roman soldiers on their side. They, they convince the Roman soldiers that Jesus is enough of a threat, that he, his potential to, to start a revolution or to kind of get the crowds all, all frenzied up, they say he's enough of a threat that they get the Roman soldiers on board. And then they decide on the perfect time and place to carry out their plan. They decide, let's do it outside the city so we don't draw attention to ourselves. And let's do it at night so that there's no crowds around to protest when Jesus, this popular teacher, is arrested. And so every part of their plan is thought out. It's meticulous because they've got a plan to do away with Jesus because that's what they want to do. 
And they come with incredible strength in numbers, which leads us to the second uh, part of that, which is uh, the power which they come with. Now, if you read any history or if you know anything about this time period, Rome was powerful. Uh, We know that from the Bible. We know that from other sources outside the Bible. Rome was very powerful. But, but even if we just look at the verses we just read, we see kind of a display of that power in, in these verses. So look at verse 3, if you would. It says, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now the question we might want to ask ourselves is, what exactly is a band of soldiers? Uh, that's a phrase that when we say it, there's probably not a number that immediately pops into your mind of, of what a band of soldiers is. And, and it's actually kind of difficult to pin down. So I was reading through a commentary by a gentleman named D.A. Carson, uh, who, who kind of helps to walk through the different possibilities. So he says, at the very highest estimate, this phrase, band of soldiers, it could be referring to a cohort of soldiers that could be as many as a thousand soldiers on paper. Now, so that's kind of our high estimate, but Carson says, in actuality, oftentimes a cohort of soldiers wouldn't have quite 1,000. It might be actually around 600 to 800, somewhere in that range. And so on paper, it's one thing, but in actuality, it could be probably closer to 600 to 800. So we kind of have 1,000, but on the lower end of the estimate, 600 to 800. But then Carson says, it's even more complicated than that because the same word could actually be used to describe a unit of soldiers a numbering about 200. So we got 1,000, but it could be less than that. And now we find out it could be actually 200 soldiers. And the same thing is true as we said before. It's 200 on paper, but it, it could also be used to describe just a part of that, of that unit. And so if someone asks, what's a band of soldiers? How many soldiers do we see here? We can say with great confidence that it's somewhere between 50 and 1,000 probably. Um, So we don't know for sure, but what we do know is it's a formidable force because look at the reaction of the disciples, right? There's 12 disciples in Jesus. We can imagine if it was a group of 20 soldiers stumbling into the garden, the disciples might look at themselves and say, you know what? We can, we can take these guys. Uh, Instead, the disciples hightail it out of there, which makes us think this is a, this is a formidable group that's showing its power. Rome wouldn't lightly, you know, send its soldiers out in the night into the countryside. There was dangers that were inherent there. And so we can, we can picture this group that's powerful, that's large, and that's uh, very daunting for anyone watching them. The description is they have lanterns, they have torches, they have weapons. You know, if you're in your mind's eye, you might picture pitchforks as well, because that's kind of what it feels like. Uh, but they're coming with this great power to do what they set out to do. They've made this plan and now they're executing their plan with all their power. And we read that they, they bind Jesus, they lead him to the high priest, and they begin this trial where Jesus is, is basically being arrested and at their mercy. And so we see the power and the plan of Rome and the religious leaders. But we also see this, your outline says, most people would have seen, secondly, the faithlessness of the disciples. Most people would have seen the faithlessness of the disciples. And this is the one that's really obvious to us, I think. So we have Judas, of course, who betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, And and it's probably the most memorable betrayal in history because it's the betrayal of the Son of Man, betrayal of a close friend, betrayal for 30 pieces of silver. And so Judas, you know, we, we take the number of 12 faithful disciples, minus one for Judas, we're down to 11. 
And that number quickly and dramatically decreases as soon as the soldiers come into the garden. Now we, uh, we read that the soldiers are coming for Jesus. They want to find Jesus of Nazareth. And look at what we read in verse 7. That kind of gives us a hint about what the disciples are thinking. It says, so Jesus asked them, that is the soldiers again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And I want you to notice what we don't read after that. We don't have the disciples saying, no, no, Jesus, we're here with you. We're not leaving. We're not going anywhere. Uh, We don't hear the disciples say, if you want to get to our master, you're going to have to get through us first. Jesus says, let these men go. He turns around and the disciples are already gone, right? (laughs) Uh, Let these, okay, they're gone. Never mind, right? Uh, The other gospels talk about them fleeing for their lives. And we see in this moment of trial, those who have been closest to Jesus, they they just flee and they're out of there. Which leaves us with Peter and another unnamed disciple. And we're not sure if that unnamed disciple is part of the 12 or not. But at least we see Peter there. And Peter, he he at least tries to put up a fight, but it doesn't do much good. And so Jesus says, put your sword away. And Peter doesn't flee, but he kind of follows from a distance. He's he's being careful. He doesn't want to get caught as well. But he's following from a distance. He wants to see how this thing turns out. And we have a little bit of hope for Peter because, okay, maybe he's going to be the one who stays faithful. And yet with Peter, we see, even in in a more sad way, the the threefold denial of who Jesus is. And so this group of disciples, faithful to Jesus, goes from 12 to zero in, in not a very long span of time. And Jesus alone is left. And so I think if we look at chapter 18, we see these things are very clear. We see the plan and power of Rome and the religious leaders, and we see the faithlessness of the disciples. And with that, we could say the majority perspective rests its case. Now, normally in court, I think this is a point where you do the recess thing when everyone goes stretch their legs, but we're not going to do that, so uh, just stay where you are. But I want to ask you the question, is what we just said true? Is it true that when you read this chapter that we see the power and plan of Rome and the religious leaders? Is it true that we see the faithlessness of the disciples? Is that actually what's being on display here? I think the answer is probably, first of all, yes. I think those things are true. I think we do see those here. But I think we could also say that they're not the whole truth. They're true, but they're not the whole truth. You see, sometimes something's true, but something else is true. And because that thing's true, it almost makes this thing seem insignificant in light of it. So often what we see on the surface, what we see that's so obvious to us, doesn't really get to the heart of what's going on. You know, we see it and we we see it with our eyes and it seems obvious, but it doesn't actually get to the heart of what's going on. When I was in grade nine, I went to snow camp um, close to where I lived, a couple hours uh, north uh, of a drive. And there was a bunch of different activities. One of the activities that we could choose to do was snowboarding. And there was a nice kind of big-sized hill at this camp. Now, of course, I come from Ontario, so you can picture a small hill. I'll picture a big hill, and we'll think of the same thing. Um, but there was snowboarding, so I decided I, I'd love to learn how to snowboard. And so I borrowed some friend's gear, and I you know, did a couple of times down the hill, And I thought, what better way to finish off my first day learning to snowboard than hitting this six-foot jump at the bottom of the hill? 
And, you know, it was the only jump that was on the hill, so I didn't have much of a choice. But I thought, I'm going to take this nice and slow. So I kind of snowboarded down, stopped before the jump, and I, I approached it nice and slow. I took off, and the worst possible thing happened. I landed it, which meant that now I had confidence to do this at full speed. And so I go again. I'm feeling really confident. I go to the jump. As I hit the jump, my feet fly forward, my arms go back, and I land on my wrist with a crack. Yeah, I broke my wrist. Uh, My right radius, which is the bone right here. But the problem was, I didn't actually go to the hospital until three days later. Uh, Because I was at this youth event, and I didn't want the good times to end. And so I had all these youth leaders saying, James, we should probably take you to the hospital. Like, let's, let's go. We'll take you. Don't worry. And I'm like, no, no, no. Don't worry about me. I'm fine. And for the rest of those three days, I decided I was going to do all within my power to act as if everything was okay, even though my arm was broken. So I'm eating meals, but I'm eating with my left hand. And uh, we have, there's a snowball fight going on. So I'm just basically, I, I can only be a target and kind of you know, dodge people. I remember we, were, we had this sports uh, activity that we were doing, and I tried to play volleyball with a broken arm, which if you've ever seen volleyball, you can imagine there's nothing you can do in volleyball with a broken arm, but I you know, tried my best. To... And it wasn't until later that I realized uh, and, and acknowledged that I actually had a broken arm. And the reason I say this is because I imagine most people watching me this weekend would have just thought I was a normal, average kid. Uh, They would have looked at me and said, okay, yeah, there's a kid eating his food. There's a kid who's terrible at snowball fights or whatever. But but they would have seen someone who was just a normal kid. They wouldn't have noticed what was actually at the heart of what was going on, that I had a broken arm and I was in an incredible amount of pain each and every moment. And I think so often with our own lives, we live in a similar way where what people see on the outside doesn't actually get to the heart of what's really going on. And maybe your life is like my story right now where people look at your life and they say, man, this person's got it all together. You know, great family, great job. It looks like they've got money and and all the rest. And yet if they were really to get a glimpse into your heart or a glimpse into what's really going on, they'd see incredible pain that you're going through. Or maybe it's the opposite kind of story where people look at your life and they actually, all they see is the pain and the hurt and the struggle. Maybe you're dealing with a a cancer diagnosis or some other kind of illness. Or maybe there's a financial strain in your life right now. And people look at your life and that's all they see. They just see the pain and the hurt and the struggle. And yet you know that at the heart of what's going on in your life, you see God at work in ways that most people wouldn't recognize. And this is what's happening in our story today. Most people look at it and they see one thing. But at the heart of what's going on, God's actually at work in some incredible ways. And so what we're going to do is we're going to now look at the minority perspective. And we're calling it the minority perspective, not because it's any less important or because there's anything uh, lesser about it, but only because I think only one person in this story would have had this perspective at the time. uh, Jesus himself. And so we'll see that the very evidence that's been put forward to show the plan and power of Rome and the religious leaders and the faithlessness of the disciples, it actually puts on display and actually points to, in in reality, the plan and power of God. That's what's really on display here. And, And I'll show you what I mean by that. There's a bigger story unfolding here that most people who are watching it wouldn't see right away, uh, but it's there nonetheless. 
You see, this is a story more about Jesus and his heavenly father than it is about Jesus and anyone else. Sure, we see Jesus and his disciples. We see, you know, Jesus and Judas, Jesus and the soldiers, Jesus and the high priest. They're all part of the story. But at the heart of what's going on, we see something happening between Jesus and his heavenly father. After Jesus is arrested in the garden and Peter tries to uh, fight, fight them off, we hear Jesus say these words in verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? Notice that Peter doesn't, or Jesus doesn't say, Peter, put your sword away. Their plan was just too sneaky. Or, or Peter, put your sword away because they're just too powerful. Uh, he doesn't even say, Peter, put your sword away. You can flee like the rest of the disciples. He says, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me? You see, Jesus recognizes that whatever else is going on at the heart of it, what's happening is something between him and his heavenly father. And we're seeing that what the events that are unfolding right now are actually part of God's plan to bring about the salvation of all who would believe in him. The cup that Jesus is talking about is a cup of God's wrath. And so what's happening is Jesus on the cross takes the punishment that our sins deserve, takes our punishment for our sins upon himself so that we might have an eternal relationship with God. And Jesus recognizes, and I want us to recognize too, that this is what's on display right here. It's not about Jesus and this person or that person, although that's part of it. At the heart of it, it's what's happening between Jesus and his heavenly father for the salvation of the world. And the amazing thing is when you have that perspective change, when you kind of look at it through that way, all of a sudden, all the details in this story start to come together to show that God's power and God's plan are being worked out even in the midst of everything else. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to look through the evidence that's before us again with fresh eyes and see just how much points towards God's power and plan in Jesus faithfully carrying this out. So we'll use the court language of Exhibit A, right? If you're looking at the evidence, you say Exhibit A, uh, which is, in this case, the context. So look at 18 verse 1, and we'll read these words. When Jesus had spoken these words... He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. Now, whenever you come to the beginning of a chapter and you hear uh, you know, something like, when he had said these words, or therefore, or a word like that, you always want to go back and say, what's come before this that sets up what we're reading? And if you look back in your Bible, you'll see chapter 17, chapter 16, chapter 15, 14, 13. There's a, a span of chapters from chapter 13 to chapter 17 where Jesus is speaking to his disciples. If you have a Bible that has, you know, red letters for what Jesus says, you'll see that almost all of these chapters are red letters. A little bit of questions from his disciples, but so much of Jesus speaking to his disciples. So this whole long section, and it's introduced in chapter 13, verse 1, with these words. Listen to what, what John writes. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So in other words, what we see in chapter 13 through chapter 17 is Jesus knowing that his time has come to depart to the Father. In other words, knowing that the time for his death, resurrection, and ascension has come. And him preparing his disciples for his departure. 
And so if you read through it later, you'll see all this stuff that Jesus says to, to prepare his disciples. One example comes in chapter 16, verse 16, where, Jesus, where uh, Jesus says, A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is it that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So in other words, Jesus is preparing his disciples. He's teaching them about his death and resurrection that's coming up. And so when we get to 18 verse 1 and we hear, when Jesus had said these words, we know the words that he's talking about. The words that he is going to die, he's going to rise again, and he's going to go to the Father. And so when we get to 18 verse 1, Jesus knows exactly what time it is. And I'm not talking about the time of day. I'm talking about the time in his father's plan. He knows the events that are about to unfold because he's just told his disciples about them. He knows that it's, it's his time to lay down his life for the sins of the world. That's what he's walking into. He's fully aware of what's going on. And with this, we see the evidence start to stack up even more. So we say exhibit B, the location the location that Jesus goes to shows the power and plan of God. And here's what I mean by this. If you look in verse 2, it says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now you think if Jesus was aware that Judas was betraying him, and if Jesus wanted to avoid that, he'd probably go to a place that Judas didn't know about. Right? But what do we see? We see Jesus chooses to go to a place that he often went to with his disciples. In other words, he didn't change his routine to try to avoid what was going to happen. He went to a place where he knew people would be able to find him because he was embracing what was coming because it was part of the Father's plan. Exhibit C, we'll look at the betrayer. Uh, Judas himself, we, we, you might say, well, you know, Judas betrayed Jesus. That shows Jesus didn't know what was going on. Actually, Jesus knew exactly what was going on because he had predicted this earlier. When Jesus is, is sitting with his disciples at the Last Supper, it says in, in chapter 13, verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And so even though the, the other disciples seem unaware of what Judas is doing, and they're shocked when they see Judas with the soldiers in the garden, Jesus isn't. He knew this was happening, and he actually predicted it beforehand. We'll look at exhibit D, the confrontation in the garden. Now you might say, doesn't the confrontation show the power of Jesus' enemies, not the other way around? And in a sense, you're right, but I want you to also notice who initiates the conversation in the garden. I, I don't know, but I'm assuming it'd be difficult for a group of maybe 100 people with torches and lanterns and weapons to use the elements of surprise. Right, so I imagine that Jesus probably had a clue that these guys were coming. But notice that Jesus is the one who goes out and meets and greets them. He says, whom are you seeking? And of course, Jesus already knows the answer, but he initiates the conversation. Because he's controlling the events as they unfold. Jesus is the one setting the agenda of what happens. We see this in exhibit E, the answer that Jesus gives. The mob says they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says, I am he. 
Uh, simple enough, but we read this in verse 6. It says, When Jesus said to them, I am he, they, felt, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, some people have read this and said, well, you know, it was nighttime, and they were probably on a hill. This was a garden, maybe on a hill. And so Jesus turned himself in. They were so shocked that someone fell over, and it kind of started a chain reaction. And, you know, that's what's going on here. I think there's something else going on. Willie mentioned before how the phrase that Jesus used here, I am, or I am he, it it can be a really simple way of, of saying, yes, this is me. I am Jesus, something like that. But it's also the phrase that God used in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus to speak to Moses at the burning bush, saying, I am who I am. I am has sent you. And it's this phrase we see in the book of Isaiah as well at the end that God uses about himself, a way that God identifies himself. And so Jesus could either be saying here, yes, I am he, I am the one you're looking for. Or I think Jesus might be saying here, I am God in the flesh. I am the sovereign Lord of the universe. And I think based on everything we've seen previous to this in the gospel and based on the fact that people literally fall over when he says this, I think he's saying the second thing here. In the midst of this trial, in the midst of this arrest, Jesus is saying, I am. I am the true authority in this situation. No matter what you think you're doing to me, I am the one who is in control. We see this uh, next in exhibit F, the flight of the disciples. So the disciples fleeing, it shows their faithlessness, yes, but it also shows the power of God because Jesus had actually predicted this beforehand and it fulfilled the thing that he had said to his father in chapter 17, verse 12, where Jesus says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. We see God's power in exhibit G, the people involved in Jesus' trial. Uh, particularly Caiaphas. So if we look at, at chapter 18, verse 14, it says this, it was Caiaphas who would advise the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now this information in verse 14, it's not random information. It's meant to point us to the fact that this is the same Caiaphas who is part of the plot to kill Jesus earlier in chapter 11. You remember Caiaphas had said, you know, if Jesus continues to do what he does, then the Romans will come and they'll kill us all. So we should put Jesus to death so that the nation doesn't perish. Well, look what John says right after Caiaphas says this in chapter 11, verse 51. It says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So you see, Caiaphas thinks, this is my plan. We're going to put Jesus to death. He's going to die so the nation won't perish. And yet more profoundly, not in the way Caiaphas thinks, Jesus will die for the nation, but he'll die for their sins and for the punishment that their sins deserve so they can have a relationship with God. And so we see whatever plan the religious leaders were working out, whatever plan Caiaphas has, It's totally in line with the plan of God for the salvation of the world. They have their plan. They're doing all their scheming. They're making all their plans. But it's completely in line with the plan that God has for the salvation of all mankind. And we see finally exhibit H, the denial of Peter. Even this threefold denial of Peter, this devastating event, points to the power of God because Jesus himself had predicted this only hours before. 
Uh, in chapter 13, 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus said to him, or Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And so the denial doesn't show Jesus' lack of control over his followers or that Jesus just couldn't keep the group together. It actually shows Jesus' power and control carrying out the plan of his father. And I hope what we've seen here is just the evidence stacking up to the point where it's undeniable. That although we we can read chapter 18 and we can kind of see on the surface it looks like Jesus' enemies are powerful, it looks like their plans coming together, What's more profoundly on display is God's power and God's purposes for the salvation of the world. And while we can look at chapter 18 and say the faithlessness of the disciples is on display, what's more profound, and your outline says, what was really on display was the faithfulness of Jesus. The faithfulness of Jesus to stick with his Father's plan. The faithfulness of Jesus to willingly lay down his life for us. The faithfulness of Jesus to take our punishment on the cross so that we may have eternal life with him. The faithfulness of Jesus to display the love, mercy, and justice of God in a way that we've never seen before. And so what we need to ask ourselves is what are we going to do with the evidence that's before us? For some of you, maybe this is your first time hearing about Jesus laying down his life for your sins that you may have forgiveness and new life. And if that's you, I encourage you, don't leave today without making a decision to give your life to Christ. To say, Jesus, would you forgive me for the things I've done? Would you give me this salvation that you talk about? Forgiveness of sins, hope for a new life. And and he'll do that today if you make that your prayer. But for those of you who have already made this decision and you've been walking with Christ for some time, my question for you is, what do people see when they look at your life? If someone were to walk around with you for, you know, with you for a day, what would they see when they look at your life? And my second question is this, would that get to the heart of what's really going on? Or would they see happiness when there's really pain? Or would they see pain and sadness when God's actually working, doing incredible things? You see, most people wouldn't have seen what Jesus was doing or what God was doing in this situation. And I think the same could be true for ourselves as well. We see the obvious things, but fail sometimes to realize the deeper things that God's doing beneath the surface. And so my encouragement for all of us is to open our eyes this week to the things that God's doing in the midst of the obvious, uh, behind the scenes, in the background. What is God doing in our lives? And I hope that we can be faithful in whatever God has called us to as we seek to tell others about him. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your incredible power and plan of salvation. Jesus, we thank you that you are faithful to the Father's plan, that you willingly laid down your life. Even though you had so many opportunities to turn away, you laid down your life for us so we may have forgiveness and freedom and follow you in hope of the resurrection. So Father, I pray that you'd open our eyes to, first of all, the things you've done through your son Jesus, but also to the things you continue to do in our lives today. And would you give us the strength to live for you? Whatever you've called us to, whatever the road ahead looks like, we want to serve you well. 
We love you, Lord. We pray this all in your name. Amen.